0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series, hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and the New Books Network partnership provide a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobilities and movement. My name is Lakshadam Malik, and today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Baas, Senior Research Fellow at Max Planck Institute Halle in Germany. We are in conversation about his book, Muscular India, Masculinity, Mobility, and New Middle Class, published by Context in 2020. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Baas. Welcome, Michael.
0: Welcome. Thank you.
1: Um, yeah. I'm. Um, um, like I was telling you, I'm I'm a big fan of the book. Really enjoyed reading it. Um, uh, and and sort of uh uh, there's a lot to get into, and we will. But just to start the conversation off, um, how did you come about this project? You you say that you spent um ten years uh sort of maybe on and off sort of uh uh collecting data, talking to people, and and thinking about this subject, but but. What made you, what convinced you sort of write a book about this? And, and yeah, just that.
0: I think, you know, so it was definitely on and off because I was doing a lot of projects in between. Um, for the longest time, I actually wanted to write a book about the Indian middle class. Um, and I'd seen quite a few being published over time. Um, there's some extra, excellent um, academic studies by Lila Fernandez, Christiana Brocious, there's so many, actually. But... Um, it was always something that that kept in the back of my mind that I wanted to talk more about the kind of social mobility that goes on within within middle class ranks and how especially how an older and a newer middle class relate to each other and that really has its start with my sort of my involvement in research uh onto the topic of the emerging i t industry in india and this was also in a sense the the first time that I came across um, modern, modern-equipped gyms in India and in urban India, so the start is really in, in Bangalore, and um, um, I think I guess things grew from there.
1: Right. No, thank you for letting us uh, in on that. Um, one thing that I was really curious about, and and you sort of put this out there in the very beginning, this metaphor of transformation that is so central to um, your your project and and the sort of idea of transformation of bodies transformation of your social status transformation of all of these sort of positions that you may inhabit in the gym or outside uh, transformation of the body of the client that the trainers might be uh, sort of uh, uh, helping uh, them achieve their goals so how does that sort of metaphor play in and throughout your entire uh, text
0: yeah, so so for that, I think I I need to take you and and the readers a little bit on a or the listeners on a on a journey. When I started looking into the the global and the local intersections in the lives of IT professionals in Bangalore, um, a lot of the the research was simply spent trying to understand how India was changing, um, and for that I was also coming from a Western perspective on this, where from nineteen ninety seven. Newspapers and, and magazines have regularly paid attention to how India was changing. Uh, you might recall that in 1997, India celebrated 50 years of independence. And um, that was one of these crucial moments internationally that the world started realizing that India was, in, in fact, changing. That a, a new India was emerging that was no longer associated with the license Raj or with under development, in, but it's that with the IT industry, with all sorts of related matters, and that kind of brought me to India also. And this is also where my my interest in that topic comes from, because we were all bombarded with the idea of a changing India and of a new India, but people weren't really engaging what precisely was changing. And, uh, even if people were, they would generally do so through juxtapositions of old and new. Uh, of bullock carts and tata indigos, for instance. And, and, you know, very kind of sort of easy contradictions or, or juxtapositions that, that always felt to me a bit too simplistic because the more time I spent with inform- informants, um, the more I realized that the change was often not very fast, but but frequently also quite slow. And I was trying to figure out how these, these narratives of change um, relate to each other. And what truly was changing, and what wasn't changing, and um, so when it comes to transformation, I think that the idea of the transformation came later. That was only when I started looking into the burgeoning fitness industry in India, uh, which really started emerging from about 2008 uh, with the with the movie Om Shanti Om, um, in which Shadow Khan revealed freshly baked apps and and suddenly triggered a fitness boom across urban india um initially of course these 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 thoughts i had about this were not very concrete but um the more i i looked into it the more i read about it i kept on encountering this 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 idea of transformation and that that seemed to be what the gyms were offering they were offering the idea that you could reinvent yourself that um, you could change your body in a certain way and and when I started looking into the men um who had already transformed their bodies and who were working as fitness trainers and competing in bodybuilding competitions, these were also typically the kind of men who who hadn't just transformed their bodies but lots of other aspects of their lives as well. Um furthermore, these transformations itself had taken place in in an India which was physically changing rapidly, transforming as such through building sites and otherwise. So so gradually I started thinking through how these various ideas related to each other, how they connected, and how they were also able to to speak to each other. And for that, of course, they become, you start conceptualizing them in a way that they that you can productively employ them to explain something. Um, And there the simple word transformation itself help because transformation is not just of the body but also what we witness around ourselves you know the transformation of of physical space and that allowed me to interrogate the idea of change in India in, in a much more concrete way and and kind of figure out how that was experienced at a at an individual level
1: right no um yeah I, I could see that metaphor sort of playing out throughout your text even and and one of the key things that sort of led me to think about the gym space and transforming bodies and transforming um, social positions and other aspects of their lives as well, as you said, was the idea that this transformation was sometimes visible and sometimes was made invisible, like in questions of labor, right? So you want to look or you want your body to look transformed, but you don't want your uh, aesthetics to look labored, right? So you don't want, so, so that sort of, into play I really appreciate it and and going together with that is this notion of of the body and the idea of knowledge which keeps coming throughout your text as well is like it's not just manual labor right so how do you so so that slippage into working class masculinity is sort of avoided or or is navigated at least uh, yeah so so how does that sort of play out
0: yeah, so I'm just thinking of the the listener here who might be a little bit like, okay, so what does this book really build upon? And I think um, maybe it's crucial to put forward that um, the book also the book kind of revolves around notions of social mobility, right? On how lower middle class men who found employment as fitness trainers um, make use of their body and their bodily capital to muscle their way up in the ranks of uh, middle-class life and um, and one thing we can counter from the start is that for lower middle-class men who've grown up in a vernacular environment they often struggle with the codes of middle-class belonging of exactly what um, being middle-class entails and the codes of the, the the kind of boundaries, what it precisely entails us, is set by an upper middle class that often has a generational history of being middle class, uh, who have grown up to sp- speaking English, who who kind of know what it entails. And in the book, I visit a couple of typical areas that you could think of as. Upper middle class having a generational history, whether that being South Ge- Delhi GK one or two, or Park, or in Mumbai, where, um, where where you know part of the book is situated in Bandra, etc. So, so how does that work? How do you make your way into that environment, and how do you then incorporate all sorts of ideas of of social and cultural capital that especially these lower middle class men are lacking in and from that i try to also explore on what that means to um, um what that means for these men in, in the way they interact with their clients and how they negotiate particular ideas of bodily ideals so if we look at what i said earlier about Rukh khan revealing freshly baked abs in om shanti om that was a that was an incredibly important moment because it introduced the muscular ideal to middle-class men more specifically, like earlier, um, um, movies had tried to do that, but never so specifically suggesting that this was going to be a bodily ideal for for middle-class men. But it was never the kind of son-on-can muscles that were popularized during that. It It was more specific. It was a kind of lean, muscular, bodily ideal with... Could stand for a whole range of things, ranging from muscular strength and, and sexual attraction to also professionalism and cosmopolitanism, and and there you have kind of bodily ideals that, of course, also need to be negotiated on the on the gym floor. So you, you need to stop me if I'm becoming too unclear or I'm I'm saying way too much at the same time. But um, you were just asking me, like, so so how do you? The gym yeah. trainers navigate that, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so there you have a, a particular complexity when you look into muscular bodies because we often treat them as. Set in stone, because you know that innocence is also what they resonate with. Like they're massive, they're incredibly strong and powerful, and they stand for a particular masculinity that that almost seems to be set in stone. And even in our metaphors, we often draw up on metaphors as like he's carved out of marble or he looks like a Roman statue, etc. But in 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 practice, muscular ideals are highly varied, especially what we read into them. As I always tell. Any person who's read the book, you should never forget that nobody really needs a muscular body like that unless you're in a labor class profession and you're pulling a rickshaw, you're working on a construction site. But um, most men who go to the gym do so to have a body that has no practical use beyond certain health concerns. But if you then look at what the fitness trainer brings to the table, a certain complexity unfolds there. But... Because fitness trainers often come from a background where they've tried to become bodybuilders, where they're striving to become more massive, uh, where they want to compete on stage. This is not necessarily what their clients are after, right? I mean, their clients generally look more towards the kind of, you know, Salman, uh, Shahrukh Khan, muscular ideal, or one of the other actors that, that showcases a lean muscularity that is not quite what a bodybuilder needs to be competitive on stage. So one thing I've tried to understand is how these different muscular bodies relate to each other, what they tell the audience and clients alike, and and how then also in a popular media these are these are layered with different types of meaning. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. No. Thank you for that, and also setting up uh, the context of the book. I really appreciate it. Um. Yeah. I mean, a follow up question from that, and and I can. Okay, let's start with like, actually the methodology and the narrative style of your text, which I particularly appreciated, right? Um, you found a way to sort of turn these into stories and, 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 and recurring and the characters were also recurring, right? It's not like one character was exhausted in one uh, particular chapter and then never brought back again. In fact, in the epilogue, you sort of go back and sort of tell us, a little bit more about what their trajectories look like now, right? So I really appreciated the care with which you handled uh, the stories of your interlocutors, and some of them were particularly hard to tell uh, as you had also shared in the text. Um, yeah, if you could just shed a light on how the methodology as well as this writing style sort of come about in uh, telling stories of mobilities rather than looking at mobility as a structural thing.
0: so actually i i I became interested in this topic roughly a decade ago. Um, not long after "Om Shanti Om" had come out, and but when I started looking in into the topic, I didn't immediately know what I was looking into, and that's typical for me as an anthropologist. I sometimes call myself a slow anthropologist, like I take quite a bit of time to figure out what it precisely is that I'm interested in. And in this case, I also really I stopped myself from immediately thinking of like a core question but instead kind of simply interacted with the people who I encountered initially online so I would simply meet people to friends like I'd mentioned like this is something that I'm starting to get interested in but I'm not sure quite what and I think I would first like to talk to a couple of these men to see what their stories are and in my work I'm always quite interested in life life trajectory life course trajectories and so at some point, I'd, find, I'd found a couple of people who were willing to share that with me, and I just let it suscinate a little bit in the background. Like every now and then, I would be back in India, I would meet them again, and I would, or they would send me messages through WhatsApp or Facebook, and and gradually I started developing an idea of where the research could go, and this is how a lot of my projects happen. I must, I, I must admit that. Um, it wasn't until I was recruited by Nalanda University, which at the time was uh, being set up from Delhi. Uh, as you may know, Nalanda University is trying to build a new international campus in Rajgir and Bihar. But at the time, their main operations were located in Delhi, and they brought me in to, to think through future plans or ideas within the university and to help collaborate on, on setting the university up. But... Um, They also gave me some time to do research. And by that time, I felt I'd gotten a little closer into into formulating an an actual research question. And since a lot of my other work was always on migration and mobility, it occurred to me that, um, whereas in the beginning, I was mainly interested in how this lean muscular body had emerged in terms of popularity, I was gradually actually more getting interested in in the man who made it possible for other men to to make and build such a body, um, so that really brought me to the the fitness trainers as a as a new emerging category of service professionals in India that's just also the stories that I was picking up on when I when I was meeting men online or I met them in Mumbai or Delhi that's also the story they told me like they had become fitness trainers uh, their parents weren't necessarily happy about that but they were actually making good money or they were struggling or all these things so <clears throat> there was something going on there and more and one of the things that I picked up on at some point where that increasingly people were telling me that they also saw it as an opportunity to learn. So being a fitness trainer wasn't just about generating money, but it was also about the proximity uh, which they had to upper middle class men from which they could learn. Learn in terms of speaking English, certain ideas of lifestyle. So a lot of this was about imaginary social mobility about the idea that um through this work you could also climb the middle class ladder and that that made it more specific. So when I joined New London University and I was able to do long-term field work that became the that became one of the main points in the research to understand how that actually works. And fortunately, by then I had kind of sort of in a very informal way already been able to establish uh, some contact with people of whom I already knew a little bit. So by then, I was really able to do more extensive field work, uh, in particular in one one gym, uh, but also more long-term interviews across India, uh, taking the idea of social mobility as a point of departure and letting people tell me their stories in how they'd become fitness trainers and what their ambitions were next and what their lives looked like. And of course, associated to these things were also questions such as how do you maintain your body? Uh, What kind of time and energy do you put in it? What are your concerns with regards to your body and the trajectory you've chosen? And from there followed all sorts of other questions as well a lot of it had to do with precarity not just economic precarity but also social precarity that these were all self-made men they had all chosen a career trajectory that nobody else in their family could could level and resonate with so there was not not much support and in some cases they've actually gone through quite a bit of a struggle to to choose this profession for themselves so so that became another line of inquiry that I want to know, know more about but if you ask me point blank about my methodology, it's always a mess. Um, And I like it that way. I think that's the advantage of doing anthropology that you can mess around a little bit. A lot of times I simply do highly unstructured interviews uh, where I, so a lot of my informants over time have actually compared it to how they imagine being on a couch with a psychologist or a therapist. Like I just, you know, let them talk. And, Usually the surprising thing always is with me. most people like talking about themselves because they rarely get the opportunity to say this much about themselves. So they just talk and they share. And then every now and then I I push them in a certain direction, like can talk a little bit about this or that. Um, But for that, I needed a lot of time. And I realized that not all projects can, can actually draw upon so much time, but I, it did kind of sort of make me realize that a lot of times these days with anthropology, we're in a hurry where actually we need a lot more time to, to be able to say anything um, without falling into stereotypes and the the traps of essentializing uh, lives.
1: Speaking of essentializing, and I, I I at a few times in the, uh, in the film, I just called it a film. It's text, but it, it, it was, yeah, you set up scenes so well. It could be a film. But um, yeah. you know, this idea of, like, um, falling into stereotypes, right? So you at a, a, a number of points in the book, you call out, like, questions you would be asked at academic conferences.
0: Oh, yeah, hilarious, yeah.
1: That especially related to caste and sex, which I was like, oh, my God, those were, like, such, like just questions you would ask, right? It was like, oh, so all of these trainers belong to Gujarat, uh, uh, right? And And questions like that. Could you walk us through like thinking about these academic stereotyping, right? Not, not common sense, not layperson stereotyping, but academic stereotyping.
0: Well, so the, the moment I tell people that I look into class dynamics in India, people are very quick to jump on the caste bandwagon. So there always needs to be something about caste and it's, it's unavoidable. And I... I realized that when you talk about class in India, there is no avoiding in caste, but it's also not that you can so easily point at caste everywhere in Indian society as if, you know, oh, there it is, there it is, and um, oh, there it is too. Um, no, it's much more subtle than that. Um, but from the perspective of academic audiences, it often felt that I wasn't stereotyping things enough. And to me, that was illuminating... More in terms of how they reflected on socioeconomic difference and on class difference than whether, than that I was wrong not to be constantly engaging in this question. So, similarly with, with sexuality, and I'll come back to that later, these questions themselves are often quite revealing for in, entrenched hierarchies that people also didn't quite want to give up on. And that has to do with that audiences in India are often. Um, english-speaking obviously because i don't present in hindi or marathi um, but also often themselves of of upper middle class or established middle class backgrounds where they are in fact the people who are the guardians the custodians of social and cultural capital so these are exactly the people that fitness trainers often try to level with and learn from, but of whom they also realize that these are the gatekeepers, these are the people who kind of decide... Who is middle-class enough? Like somewhere in the book, I give this example of this uh, informant Supriya, who's a female client of this gym in South Delhi. And she knows a little bit about my research. Uh, She's very intelligent herself. She studied and everything. And at some point she said, oh, I see what you're interested in. Because a lot of these men, and then she casually waves at a number of trainers who all hail from Delhi. She said, yeah, a lot of these trainers are really mimicking middle-class behavior. Mimicking is, of course, an interesting term to use because it's quite demeaning, right? It's uh, like, um, you know, you're faking it, but she's not buying it. Um, and this is something that I often experienced in conferences as well, where, um, where people kind of through their questions said how they really felt about newcomers to middle class ranks. They actually looked down upon them, and from that also came questions of caste the assumption that middle class tra- fitness trainers belonging to mi- new middle class backgrounds surely must be Jat or gujar um, because that was the idea they also had of such rowdy newcomers who hadn't quite learned to how ha- to be appropriately middle class and and it was striking because i didn't really i didn't really have any evidence for that but the moment i I suggested that I thought it was more complex than that and that my fieldwork certainly didn't point in that direction, that um, um, even though there's one whole chapter, of course, where I talk about a Gujarat dominated bodybuilding fed- federation, it was often difficult to get this across. And I think this had to do with stereotyping and how these intense differences often also triggered that idea that, uh, you know, new middle class people can be pointed at and put in their place
1: right no that was yeah sorry did i interrupt you please no 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 not at all no that was extremely nuanced and, and thank you for shedding light because i want it was such an interesting to point out in the text i was i, I just made a note i wanted to ask you about that but one of the key things that you do in your text is also not just look at particular people but relationships right your very first chapter you're not even looking at these trainers in the gym right that they're, they're at, in Mumbai, it's that uh, it's the Ganesh Chaturthi festival, and and they're very much hanging out, quote unquote, right, and and not as professionals. The other instance which which I really sort of stuck with me was the relationship between um, Ravi, the the gym owner, and and Manish uh, at the Delhi gym, right? Who Manish not necessarily being uh, old middle class and and trying to find a niche, and and, and Ravi is trying to find a new trajectory as as away from his father's construction business, which is uh, doing really well. But but there is there is a melancholic sort of aspect to that relationship, which is more than just professional, right? So a space like a gym facilitating a relationship that is more than just professional, and and there is emotional investment in that. Could you yeah. just walk us through that?
0: Yeah, this was a particularly emotional and difficult chapter to write because Ravi of, of course commits suicide halfway the chapter. Uh, this was an emotional, time for, for everybody in the gym, me included, because I'd, I'd gotten quite close to this informant and he'd shared a lot of aspects of his life with me. And he was of a, of a typical GK, upper middle class, well-established background, where he wanted to do something else in life. And doing something else and being self-made are a very important ingredients in, in all the, uh, the life stories of the trainers and bodybuilders that I met. Almost all of them are a really self-made man who's really who've really started doing something completely different from from their family, and and they often face an obstacle there as well. Obstacles there in terms of you know gaining acceptance and and doing what they want. And in, in Ravi's case, it also meant downward mobility. So um, he obviously made a lot less money in the gym than he would have done had he stayed with his father's business. And uh, in the end, he' This culminated, um, you know, and created a lot of mental distress. Um, that is a bit too detailed to go into here, I guess. I mean, that story is in the book. But what you see from that is that that particular decision did, for a brief moment in the gym, um, make that other people needed to reflect on their own position because everybody kind of knew what was going on. This was a very popular trainer uh, among. The other trainers who were of lower middle class background, like I said, and most of them were from Chiragdili, um, where the gym was located kind of in that fold between Siapak and, um, and and GK, so typical South Delhi. Uh, thus, the clients were all from that neighborhood. And the, the clients also really knew Ravi incredibly well. Um, so for that briefest moment in these few weeks when people were dealing with the the loss and eventual the memorial service at a, a local area, so much temple. Um, they talked a lot about this, so it was suddenly they were kind of free to talk about it because of um, and you know I mean, and that's always a sad thing that that you know it provided me with an insight that um, I couldn't have really have developed. Maybe I could have developed it otherwise, but in this this instance, of course, it was a very painful occurrence to, to have that. And it took me a long time actually to write about that aspect because it, it always felt strangely opportunistic. But then the case itself was also so, it spoke to precisely what I'm trying to address in the book, that that being self-made and, and choosing a different life course trajectory is still a difficult thing to do in India because of past experiences with economic precarity, with notions of class and and caste.
1: Right. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. It it was, yeah, it, it was very sort of emotionally invested. You could tell that it, it, it was uh, definitely something that was very well thought out. Or uh, Yeah, thank you. for. But, but what sort of interested me more about that was the relationships that form between people, right? So mobility is oh, yeah. not so, just... So,
0: so Ravi, Manish, <laughs> and all these people, yeah. So I think that's also what the gym sometimes is because... Both clients and trainers come to the gym to with an orientation towards that body and transformation that kind of aligns easily also with letting go of other. I wouldn't call them inhibitions but maybe restraints that you know govern life outside the gym, so the gym is also in a sense a free space. Um, it's a space, of course, already where you don't look too good because you're sweaty, etc. You're working hard, but it's also a place where um, trainers and clients work in close proximity to each other. And, and there's a lot of interaction Interaction that, that wouldn't necessarily take place outside. Um, and that colored these relationships as well, and these friendships, even. Um, and I'm still in touch with a. The the manager of this gym, and of course, he he still misses Ravi as a friend. But it was also it was a particular time within which that that could take place because they they all concerned men who were reorienting themselves in terms of the trajectory, the life course trajectory that they wanted to walk or explore.
1: Mm. Yeah. No. Thank you for sharing that. Um, the other thing that, and you mentioned Om Shanti on uh, several times, and and uh, clearly it was like it was a watershed moment. But I remember Farah Khan in an interview, the director of the film, saying that she did that for Ashar Khan to do that because she was poking fun at how much Bollywood was invested in um, six pack abs. So ironically, that becomes the film that also institutes it. That was particularly interesting. Um, But you use Bollywood and images in general, popular images, and images even the trainers and and bodybuilders may themselves produce on their social media, right, in very interesting ways. And here I'm thinking about this one particular moment with uh, when Supriya, one of the clients, and and Amit, her trainer, are watching this uh, Bollywood uh, dance video. And 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 looking at uh, Ranveer Singh, who's already clearly chiseled and and has six pack abs and everything, and is performing uh, to a Bollywood dance uh, to to the Bollywood music, and and they have very different sort of interpretations and different takeaways from the scene itself, right? And and act of engaging not just images that are like so it's not just like a very direct consumption where whatever the film industry throws at you you consume so this sort of negotiated it's, I'm really interested in how you sort of uh, deployed images in this way
0: yeah I think you know so obviously when you spend this much time with your the formers there are all sorts of moments when, when, you, when you're watching something or talking about something that um. That speaks to a bigger problem and only later you start realizing this. So this was this was quite an interesting time because this movie came out. Um I still have a tendency to call it um Raslila, but it, it has a longer title. It went through this whole drama of um, it needed a new title, right? At the time. I don't know if you recall that, but um Karishlu. Yeah. I'm thinking of the full
1: title. Ras Lila Ram Lila Ram. Yeah.
0: And um So this was obviously poised to be like a blockbuster movie, and it starts like that. Um, You know, it starts with Ranveer Kapoor sort of arriving on scene in a way that even for Bollywood movies, (laughs) it's quite over the top, I think. You know, it's 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 phenomenal. I love that scene, by the way. I think it's very funny and it's very well done. And it, it did that, needed that. There's even a couple of women who faint when when Ranveer actually strikes a bodybuilding pose, and you know, one nearly tumbles off a balcony. And it's just you know, but you can kind of also see that the two middle classes that are watching that movie are watching it. Different kind of movie. And from that, I try to also show that, you know, they're coming from different directions in terms of the development they go through, but both, but both are working out where they belong vis a vis each other and, and this wider constellation of consumption rampant consumption um you know uh, uh shopping malls emerging everywhere money being spent de- dealing with health issues so so in the end you know i mean you, on the one hand you can can work with a sort of dyadic layering hierarchical layering which posits to supria this trainer at two opposite ends of the spectrum but both at the same time are in the same kind of space um, that have it has emerged out of this as well. So you know the, the, the fitness industry is typically a product of economic growth and 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 urban change and all sorts of related developments post 1991. Um, and and I think associated with that, and I I forgot if I do that in the same chapter, I also try to say something about the history of middle class belonging in general in, in India where. Um, now there is a clear sense of who is lower of new middle class as opposed to upper or older middle class. But one thing you see if you read through text on, on the middle class in India, you see that there's always a shift going on where a new group gradually becomes the older middle class. And who was once the older middle class and starts looking down upon that. So uh, there's never not been a moment since Lord Macaulay's minutes on education when they came up with this idea of of an Indian middle class that needed to be created in the in the image of of the British elite, the colon colonizers. There was never not a moment when there was an old and a new middle class that that. Of which the older middle class then reflected negatively on the new middle class, and you you see something similar also in in how constant this number of three hundred million has been over time to point at that um there is a burgeoning middle class in India, so I don't know if you picked up on that in the text, but I speak about quite a bit about. This idea that, so an idea that is associated with the middle class in general and the Indian middle class is specific is this idea that this middle class is growing, right? Because India is changing, development has been economic growth. So in relation to that, a lot of academics and journalists have argued like, oh, my God, this Indian middle class is growing so rapidly and it's now 300 million large like the 300 million individuals but strikingly that this has now been going on for 25 years so there have been publications for 25 years now that argue that as a result of rapid change we now have 300 million middle class indians and that kind of tells you that we don't really know who middle class who is middle class yet you know there are a lot of different ideas about that and and So instead of kind of putting a number to it, I try to also show that a lot of this are, you know, what is middle class is a social and cultural construct, it really depends on who you ask. And it really depends on such moments when you stand in a gym watching a movie, that it comes to for like, okay, this is what it might be. And you know, in academic conferences, I've sometimes used the the example of myself. I've been in a relationship with uh, my partners originally from Bangalore and from typically from an upper middle class background. So, you know, I've also directly encountered from at a at a personal level what that might be and how they, as a family, my in laws, think of. Um, their own belonging vis-a-vis other groups and and one thing that is so constant is this idea that you you know who's lower
1: yeah no thank you for share. that was that was thank you for that um one of the obviously the clearly the elephant in the room is masculinity and that's one of the overarching themes and and closely relates to this idea of of transformation and flux which you also use in the text it's it's like even the masculinity, which is being reworked in the gyms and and outside those spaces as well, right, um, is also constantly in a flux and is not a finished product in itself, right? And and it's like it went from one stage to the next, right? So how does that play out uh, vis-a-vis this class difference, which is so critical to your text?
0: Yeah, so so this is another kind of stereotype that I try to unpack, which exists really within that. That, that construct of, um, a dyadic hierarchical layering where we pitch lower middle classness as opposed to upper middle classness. So there is an idea of masculinity, um, where the muscular body is equated with an idea of a toxic masculinity as we've all witnessed it, um, in, in recent years and in India, from the most gruesome rape cases to more generally the problem of of ease-teasing, bullying, um and and related issues. And what I've actually tried to show is that, that that assumption or that idea that there is a sort of a conflation between the muscular body and the toxic masculinity is untenable. Um, it doesn't work out. It certainly When I interviewed my informants, um, that really didn't come across. In fact, quite the opposite, and that has to do with the notion of transformation itself. Like I mentioned a few times already, most of these men um, are doing something radically different from their families, and by doing so, they really already had to negotiate themselves all sorts of ideas of patriarchy, of what it means to be men within their own Background, which is sometimes semi-rural, semi-urban, which is sometimes an intermediate caste background, like in the case of Gujar and Jatman. Um, but most of the time, often has to do with the trajectory they are on, where they left behind um, that background and they're trying to, through a pathway of upward mobility, um, try to climb up in, in middle-class ranks. And because of their jobs where they often have to work with female clients, they have female colleagues, and the whole process of, um, of carving out a new trajectory from themselves, what struck me is that that often also as a consequent means that I have to, that thought through uh, ideas of masculinity and gender uh, as well. So, So these are typically actually not... Not the men who <laughs> engage in that kind of problematic behavior, but of course it does point at kind of a crucial element in understanding what might produce to- toxic masculinity, and and I think there are a lot of you know we should train more attention to how for a lot of men there isn't much mobility at all, not much movement in their lives. So of co- obviously the men I focused on have been successful at that, or at least have had the guts to do something else with their lives. And it takes a lot of guts to do what they do. It's not an easy trajectory at all. It's not like they woke up one morning out of sheer boredom, went to the gym, then out of sheer laziness, became fitness trainers, and then suddenly uh, became revere types about well, on social media. Now, all of that really entailed very, very hard work. But this also kind of depends on on... on you know, perseverance, on, on the body itself, on, on all sorts of other factors. And I think when we look into the question of toxic masculinity, what we often see is that these are, this you know, the stories that that emerge from interviews with, with men who have been involved in, in acts of toxic masculinity generally point at not moving at all, not moving up, often moving down, um, not having these options, opportunities, etc. So that sets them apart from the man I focus on in this book. But it's it's in a in a sense, it also blinds us because part of the muscular is of course muscular bodies still associated by an older generation at least with um you know gunda-like behavior, with being rowdy man, door man, um, muscle man, mm-hmm. meaning money collectors. And I point at that a little bit in the first chapter where we meet uh, Kishore and his friend who have actually been money musclemen for local politicians in the past, but who are very busy um, letting go of a past life and past expectations and really doing something
1: different. Right. Now, that actually... And and sort of based on this, I want to go into the next question... Which your sort of discussion of sex, um, it was particularly interesting, uh, uh, straddling both homosexual and heterosexual forms of desire in in spaces like gym for the first time, looking at the male body as this object of desire, uh, which would ne- usually be associated with women, at least in the Indian context, largely right, not necessarily, but but normatively would be, uh, so for the first time, experiences this kind of objectification, but instead of falling into the trap of sort of uh, thinking of those not in power as being sexually available, right? You, It's a it's more complex discussion than that. I think I really like this one sort of sen- uh, this phrase that you use in the text, which is like, gyms in urban India are also meant to be safe spaces Protected from the harsh gender relations outside. An important caveat, though, is that um, one thing that is not left at the door is class difference itself, right? So, how does that play into the entire? Um...
0: Yeah. So the sexuality thing is actually it relates a little bit to what people would always ask me about caste, and I've been talking about this topic for a long time. And actually, in the past few months, since the book book has come out, I've I've done quite a few online sessions. Um. um and a lot of them were kind of sort of more for a general audience um, than what we're talking about here. Um, so, and th- th- this question keeps coming back. And but in the chapter itself, one thing I uh, I do is I, I build a little bit on um, the jocular questions and remarks of my gay friends in Delhi and Bangalore and Mumbai, who all kind of imagine that I as a gay man have located my research in a a candy store with owner away so what they're basically suggesting is that the men that I've interviewed are all easily available for sexual services and but I then point out in the chapter that this does not resonate at all with my research finding in fact there is um In terms of personal narratives that I collected over time, there isn't a whole lot of sex there. Whether it's sex with men or with women, it doesn't matter. Sex is just generally not very present in any of their personal narratives. And I'm starting to wonder why that is. And, of course, initially I thought maybe I'm not digging deep enough, maybe they're hiding something from me. But that struck me as really weird because men like Kishore in the first chapter is a person I've known for a very long time. He talks very openly to me about everything. Um, I've met his parents. Um, you know, I've even spent an entire day with him delivering um, uh, their Chembur Idol from uh, from his neighborhood to to Sea Seaside on the final day. So it's not like he hasn't welcomed me into his life. So why is this, why does this stay hidden? Or is it in fact not hidden? But are we talking about a particular urban myth where um, my friends who are often upper middle class background think of this man as... Easily available, where as this might not necessarily point at a reality and more at a, again a hierarchical lay, uh, um, uh, ordering of things, where you know they this is just simply something they think at the moment. I started thinking about that and considering that it also occurred to me that I could actually point at um, at a at a way at a sort of a disparaging or demeaning way of looking down to social climbers. And what this actually meant, and so I took that as a again as a point of departure to really try to understand how different groups relate to each other, and of course, part of the this is complicated by the fact that these bodies are in themselves generally considered to be very sexually attractive because this is exactly what Bollywood movies do, what magazines do. They all present this body as sexually attractive, as an ideal type. As, as a man, if you have six-packs and bulging biceps and and etc., you are considered sexually attractive. And, and this has been there through the ages and it's certainly not specific for India at all. I mean, this is the way this is the reason Greek statues look the way they do, right? So there's no denying that there is something going on there. But I was more interested in also this this most of my informants identified as straight, as um, or not at all, but certainly not as gay. Um and but in their social media updates, especially when they had engaged in these um photo shoots that I did to build up a a modeling portfolio. A lot of them are, you know, try to become male models. Um, What I found curious was how saturated these social media updates, they felt saturated with kind of a particular homoerotics that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And that led me to wonder what, what that was about. And the more I talked about it with these men, I started to understand that perhaps also here my own positionality, my own, so I needed to be more self-reflexive on why this question was emerging in the first place, but I also tried to link it to how my friends had made all sorts of remarks about this and, and how that then by itself also creates the impression that what we're dealing with is... um something that can can kind of sort of neatly analyzed along an axis where you have one group that comes from a, a rural vernacular background that doesn't really understand this of themselves and a, a more cosmopolitan upper middle class that that sees these images for what they are and and by doing so draws certain conclusions out of that that might not necessarily be intentional. So I hope I'm, I'm making sense that. Um, yeah, you
1: are making sense.
0: Yeah, so, you know, because I'm, I was actually the last few days I've been working on a. So I've tried reworking this chapter also into an academic article where, um, with continued research of the main informant in this chapter, Salvan, who is now, um, who features in his own pornographic productions and works uh, and delivers escort services, same sex ac- escort services. Um, but I kind of try to understand this at a a deeper level on how um, this kind of layering um, also speaks to socioeconomic differences, but also how how these images are consumed um, by various spectators and how their intention might, for instance, differ from the way they are consumed and how that helps us also understand on how people in different socioeconomic pr- pr- positions reflect on each other?
1: Right. Um, this is sort of going back to the question of caste. Uh, and and I really appreciated the way you looked at the subtleties in which caste capital or the lack thereof might operate. And I'm particularly thinking about Victor, the bodybuilder uh, from Tamil Nadu uh, in this context and, and thinking about caste not just sort of as either enabling or disabling a bodily capital that can be used as currency to enter into, quote-unquote, middle-class circles, right?
0: Yeah, so the story of Victor is, I think, quite special because he started out as an IT professional. I mean, he's a typical Brahmin boy, um, coming from um, an impoverished, lower-middle-class family, but always educated. Um and actually trained in English, so this sets him apart a little bit from a lot of other trainers who come from vernacular backgrounds. But in terms of socioeconomics, it's not like he comes from a, a much more well-off background. It's just that he had this to his advantage, and maybe from a typical Brahmin, pers- you know, position, he was pushed to work hard in school, or at least he had some. I- you know, advantage there. But when I first met him, he was an IT professional, and um, but he was dreaming of a life where he be- could become his, his own personal training start his personal training business. But he was also typically an example of a person who whose first primor- priority had always been his bodybuilding career, and as a result of that, he was also one of the men that I met who was considerably bigger than his clients hope to be. So part of the thing that I look into with him was how he had experienced the trajectory, of course, from being an IT professional, of drumming background to becoming a fitness trainer, which comes with all sorts of questions, but then also how he tried to capitalize on his bodily capital and how he was actually able to translate that into being an attractive personal trainer when it's not necessarily his body that his clients want to emulate for themselves, if that makes sense. He has enormous biceps. And for most of his clients, that will be way too big. He has the kind of biceps that makes you extremely competitive on a bodybuilding stage. But that is not what clients are generally after. And that is also not what makes you look like, um, you know, Amir Khan or, uh, or or Farhan actor, you know, in a movie, which is probably something that clients dream of. So, um, so these were the kind of two things I wanted to look into, and and how that negotiation also takes place at at two levels. Obviously, um, as a, coming from a vegetarian household, but not having the money for expensive whey proteins, he had to find a way to get in the necessary proteins, and and thus did he start eating tuna fish and chicken, for which he needed a way to to prepare it and consume it without bothering his his mainly upper caste uh, colleagues or his family or his neighborhood. Um, and so there, of course, Cass is very present in that discussion. And at the same time, he, he had to find a way to convert the fact that he's a very knowledgeable person um, and find a way to, to tell that story through his body. And that was, of course, as a, as an IT professional, it's kind of as a given that he has knowledge. But how do you tell people that you have knowledge when your body almost immediately evokes the impression that it's uh it's something that belongs to the working classes or that is see a lot of bodybuilders struggle with this in, in you know in general on that um they realize that they have pumped you know their body that they've not just invested a lot of capital in their body but also that their body resonates with knowledge because they have knowledge of how to they 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 had the knowledge to transform their bodies and that is in the end of course what clients are after um one of the reasons that victor is successful extremely successful as a personal trainer is because he's effectively able to get across that he knows what he's doing and and that also allowed him to step away from the predicament that his clients might not want his body for themselves, but to think of his body as probably having gone through all the stages where they might have stopped, but his whole body communicates knowledge of transformation.
1: Right. No, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I'm very mindful of your time, and I see that I've taken up a lot of it. Oh, no worries,
0: uh, don't worry. I enjoy talking about this.
1: Yeah. But thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Uh, I am Lakshita Malik, and this discussion of uh, Muscular India, Masculinity, Mobility, and the New Middle Class, published by Context in 2020, has been brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you so much for listening.